tell you two stories. So the first story was told to me by Courtney, who is an American anthropologist, and it's set in a small town in Guyana called Sand Creek. So the background to this story is that in very small remote villages in Guyana, girls sometimes have difficulty accessing secondary level education. So the government set up a um, system to rectify that by putting a boarding school in this small town called Sand Creek. And Courtney went there to study the uh, effect of that educational program. But when she was then there, she stumbled on something she was not expecting. Shortly after she arrived, she realized that girls were disappearing from the school. Now, the first time this happened, she was told by some of the girls, original girls' classmates that granny had come for her. And when she asked the other teachers, she was told the girl had fallen ill and she'd been taken back to her village by her family. Now, Courtney assumed that the illness was something, you know, a tropical illness like malaria, but she started to become sort of uncomfortable as girl after girl disappeared. And this sort of specter of granny coming for the girls kept entering the picture in a very ominous way. It wasn't until Courtney had been in the town to, for long enough for the people to trust her that she discovered what was actually happening, which is that the girls had developed contagious seizures. So they were going into a frenzy of convulsions. They had to be locked in the dormitory to protect them. And this was spreading from girl to girl like a virus. What's more, this had been going on in, um, in Sand Creek and in Guyana for a long time. It had been extensively medically investigated. Tests were normal. One group actually called in an American psychologist to examine what was happening. And they declared that this was a case of mass hysteria. Now the Sand Creek people took this as a grievous insult and they rejected that formulation. They preferred to come up with their own explanation for what was happening. Granny, as it turned out, was not a sort of kindly old matriarch. She was a spirit that lived in the mountains behind the school. And they believed that the, one of the school children must have upset Granny and that she had come to the school to infect them. Now the second story occurs in an equally small town, thousands of miles away, this time in Kazakhstan, a place called Krasnogorsk, and it was told to me by Lyubov. So in 2010, when Lyubov was in her late 60s, she was working on a market stall in Krasnogorsk when she fell asleep and the other people in the market couldn't wake her. She was taken to hospital, she had lots of tests, it was all very inexplicable. She, the doctors couldn't wake her and she stayed in that state for a week before just spontaneously waking up. Then, much like in Sand Creek, this spread from person to person in the town. Within five years, 133 people had developed a mysterious coma. Now, the scientists in Kazakhstan went into overdrive. You know, they did every test possible, every environmental and medical test and found nothing. Once again, a diagnosis of mass hysteria was mooted. Once again, it was rejected by the people. They believe strongly that they were a victim of a poisoning campaign by the government who wanted to clear the town. No poison has ever been found. Now, what these both of these groups were, were told that they had mass hysteria, and that's a medical phenomenon in which you get a spread of psychosomatic symptoms, which are propagated by fear and anxiety. And psychosomatic symptoms are real physical symptoms that are believed to occur for a psychological cause. Now, as a neurologist, I see seizures and sleeping sicknesses like this all the time. I can't tell you how common they are. I see them every day of my working life, seizures that have a psychological cause. 
I also understand completely why these people rejected this formulation, because despite a lot of medical progress, many people still sort of conceptualize this disorder in a very disparaging way. You know, it's thought to be synonymous with a psychiatric or mental illness, which is not. It's, it's universally explained by stress. People refer to it as madness. A lot of people still can't tell the difference between a psychosomatic disorder and pretending to be sick. And in the case of young women like those in Sand Creek, you know, people who are caught up in these outbreaks are still likened to um, Salem witch trials. So I understand why people reject the formulation. And I, too, am partially guilty, certainly as a, a junior doctor, for propagating the sort of reductionist attitudes to these sort of disorders. You know, although this is so common, I was never given any formal training on how to approach one of these sort of disorders when I met them. I only had a single hypothesis, and that was 100 years old, and it came from Freud, which was that these were sort of the manifestation of hidden psychological traumas that were being converted into physical symptoms. I only had a stress hypothesis for the symptoms. So when I told patients that their symptoms were stress-related and they told me they were not, I invariably fell into the trap of thinking, well, they must be in denial, which was not a very fruitful conversation between patient and doctor and often led nowhere. And that was a long time ago that I sort of had this singular formulation. I've learned now over time that these disorders are actually not a single disorder. They have multiple different mechanisms and that stress is not the only way that a psychosomatic disorder can develop. So I want to just kind of present you with some sort of small thought experiments that will just hopefully demonstrate how easy it is for us to lose control of our bodies, even if we have no particular trauma or stresses. So first of all, I want to ask you to imagine that I have asked you to walk on a thin line on the ground and just to, to remain walking in a straight line, assuming that a person is well, hasn't had too much wine to drink. Most of us would do that with no difficulty whatsoever. But now if I asked you to walk exactly the same line, but at the top of a high wall, you know, immediately a lot of people would struggle to keep their balance. Walking and movement is supposed to be automatic. And the minute we start paying undue attention to it, it becomes less fluid and it threatens the quality of those movements. Sports people sort of um, experience this all the time. You know, you can completely destroy your sports game by changing the way you hold a racket or changing the way that you kick a ball. Sensation is also completely changed by undue attention to our bodies. So again, if I say to people, you know, at this moment as I'm talking, pay attention to how your feet feel. If you're anything like me, you'll immediately feel that sort of your feet are beginning to tingle because we don't normally think about how different body parts feel. They just exist on their own and they function without us having to think. But when we do start paying attention to them, we notice things that normally are filtered away. And once we notice things, they can be hard to unnotice. This is similar with awareness. Again, I will ask you just to imagine that you've had a phenomenally busy day at work and that you come home and someone you know the person you live with is trying to give you instructions and in something you're not terribly interested in and they can talk to you and not a word will go in or you can read a page of a book and you get to the bottom of the page of the book and you realize you haven't regist registered anything you've read this is a process called dissociation which is designed to protect us against overload and um, intrusive thoughts but when it goes wrong, it can produce things like sleeping sickness and seizures. And so the point really is that we've got all these unconscious processes going on that allow us to kind of act 
automatically. There's more going on in the unconscious brain than in the conscious brain. And the purpose of all these cognitive mechanisms is to make us efficient, and to keep us safe in the world and to make us focused, but they can go awry. And it doesn't take very much for them to go awry and it doesn't re rely on psychological trauma. It could be just a factor of the attention one pays to our body or how one notices or uses one's body differently. And that might be provoked by something very small, like an injury, like believing one is exposed to a poison as the Krasnogorsk people did, or being caught up in a pandemic. So over time, I've come to realize that sort of psychosomatic symptoms develop in a kind of a multitude of ways. And that allows me to kind of present them to my patients in an individualized kind of way. So that for some people, the stress hypothesis works well because their symptoms are related to an activation of the stress pathway. But for other people, the mechanism may be very different. However, this is where my point builds to somewhat of a, a sort of decrescendo, which is that even with multiple new ways of thinking about psychosomatic symptoms, conceptualizing them in a more biological way or a physiological way, I still encounter endless numbers of people like those in Sand Creek and those in Krasnogorsk who simply struggle to believe in the existence of this problem. And kind of knowing that no matter how carefully I explain things, I cannot get through to everyone has always made me realize that there is still something that I must be missing. And really, I had to go to Kazakhstan, I had to meet Lyubov to kind of begin to, to think of what that something might be. So in 2019, I traveled to Krasnogorsk and I met um, Lyubov in her home. And she told me an incredible story that allowed me to see the sleeping sickness really differently. First of all, Krasnogorsk used to be a very special place. During the Soviet era, it was a uranium mining town that was under special protection from Moscow. And the people there lived in these kind of amazing modern apartments that were, you know, nestled in lush kind of gardens. They had cinema, they had a modern hospital, they had creches, cultural centers, their shops stocked products that didn't exist anywhere else in Kazakhstan. So as Lyubov told me, she lived in paradise and she meant that literally. But then, of course, the Soviet Union broke up in 1991. Kazakhstan sort of lost its um, was no longer in the Soviet Union. Krasnogorsk lost its special protection from Moscow, and that changed everything. The mines shut down. The people lost their jobs. People started gradually leaving Krasnogorsk and services started to be withdrawn. Um, but there was a kind of a core group of people who just couldn't bear to leave. So they spent 20 years in a dying town to the point that some didn't even have running water. But that is not what made them sick. They survived that 20 years. They were a hardy people. The sleeping sickness didn't come until the government decided they wanted to relocate the remaining residents into a new town. This for the people, it was sort of like a, a sort of a love affair that had sort of was once wonderful and had broken apart. And they simply were struggling to, to kind of cut that last tie. And the sleeping sickness seemed to come along as to kind of give them permission to leave a town that they loved and that had served them so well. The Sand Creek story also had considerably more nuance once I had the opportunity to kind of hear it in more detail. It was important to understand what was happening to the girls, to understand their lives. So in um, remote areas of Guyana, these particular people lived with a different sort of um, kinship structure to us. Women stay 
within the village and do all the work in the village and the men go away to work. Kinship depends on proximity rather than on blood ties. Also, the people learned in a very different way to us. They learn through embodied learning. So they learn through proximity and participating and being involved rather than by instruction. So what had happened by taking the, um, the teenage girls away from the villages and putting them in the boarding school is it had completely dismantled these people's kinship structure. It had stopped the girls from learning the skills within the village that they would normally learn just by their presence there. And the book learning that they were getting in school was useless to them in the future. So really when Granny came along, she kind of solved a very um, significant social dilemma for them. She kind of allowed the children to um, kind of make the counterintuitive move to, to leave aside the education that they did want and to, to go home. So in both these cases, although these people technically had mass hysteria, they did not have symptoms because of a sort of contagious stress um, and anxiety. It was not provoked by fear. Similarly, they didn't have a, a psychosomatic disorder in the sense of the Freudian sense. They were not having physical symptoms that were arising through hidden traumas converted into, into physical symptoms. Um, it was sort of, you know, they were under stress, but what was going on at an unconscious level was much more complex than just a simple sort of conversion disorder. But also, I would say that my particular sort of biologizing, you know, using physiology and examples to explain what was happening to them, that wasn't actually very useful to them either. So any sort of new ways I've learned to talk about these disorders was useless because these people did not want to know that their physical symptoms were, could potentially have a psychosomatic cause. And it was obvious why because these symptoms had come along to solve um, a significant social problem for the people. And to try and force them to kind of take on my way of thinking was in every sense really threatening these sort of very complex, sophisticated, unconscious mechanisms at play in these communities. You know, I sort of, um, you know, these young women, they didn't want to um, leave the school, but they knew that they had to. And similarly for the Krasnogorsk people, they, um, they loved the town, but they knew that they had to leave it. So the symptoms served a purpose for them. And I came to realize that like not every problem can simply be solved with a sort of logical list of pros and cons. You know, it was naive of me to think that one can kind of biologize everything and it will immediately make sense because there are some problems that are too hard to contemplate. And for those sorts of problems, these sort of sophisticated kind of elegant unconscious mechanisms can actually be incredibly useful to people. I think ultimately what I learned from these communities is that I need, when I encounter patients who aren't of my mindset when it comes to sort of biology and physiology and, and don't accept my explanations, that I need to listen to the story that their symptoms are trying to tell me. You know, these people embodied a narrative that kind of led them through a quagmire of a problem to a solution. So perhaps I need to sometimes kind of stand back and sort of listen to my patient stories and allow them follow their own stories to their own conclusions. And I suppose the only question now is whether I, as a sort of um, very kind of meddlesome trained sort of Western medical doctor who is forced to take symptoms literally, whether I can actually do that for my patients. Thank you.